shacking old lady at a red light. Pull a gun on the owner of a liquor store. You think it's cool, act a fool if you like. Cuss out a cop, spit in his face. Stomp on the flag and light it up. Yeah, you think it's tough. Welcome back to Real Voices of the Game. I'm Dave D'Agostino. I'm joined here today by my co-host and star of this show, Bob Schaefer. This is Touch Em All, episode 373 on the network. Before we bring Bob on and our special guest today, we've got a loaded show for you today. Just want to thank a few people. First, our audience. Almost 60,000 subscribers right now. Grassroots MLB front offices. You guys know what to do after this show. Let's let's fight the algorithm just like they do in Major League Baseball. Give Bob five stars. Write some nice comments. That way we can stay at the top of iHeartRadio podcast episodes here. To our second uh, group, uh, Blackout Coffee. Be awake, not woke is their slogan. Uh, Bob is now a an ambassador for Blackout Coffee because of his great performances on the show. We don't ask him when he puts in the Blackout Coffee, but we know he likes to drink it during the show. It's capital B-O-B-S-20. Get you 20% at checkout on all your purchases. After that, you'll get 15% in perpetuity. Uh, we appreciate that friendship. Discounts, baseball, and coffee. We love we loved our friendship there. And then our, our last thank you is to probably our, our, our biggest fan of the show and was on the show three times, our very first guest, uh, former Major League infielder Ted Kubiak, three-time world champion. If you were looking for a stocking stuffer this winter for, for a baseball fan, get Ted's book, Old School. Talks about his view on what happened to the, the pastime that he loves. And also a nice companion book with that is his fielding manual. Uh, the most comprehensive book I've read on fielding. Uh, he approaches it in a way that you don't see out there in this YouTube generation of uh, people looking for influence instead of excellence. Ted's all about excellence. So get those two books uh, for the holiday for your baseball lover. I'll put Ted's website in our show notes for you. Uh, but with that, Bob, welcome back to your show. Well, thanks, Dave. It's good to be back another week, and I'm fortunate this year or this week to have uh, one of my best friends in baseball, Jeff Pentland. We worked together in Kansas City. We worked together with the Los Angeles Dodgers. He one of the best hitting coaches in the game. He was a star at Arizona State. He was a pitcher and a first baseman. Uh, he won 32 games in his stint at Arizona State, which is pretty good. He's a power hitter. He ended up playing in the minor leagues with the uh, I think it was San Diego Padres. Then he went into coaching and coached Arizona State quite a while, right, Penn? Yeah, no, nine years. Okay. And then you, then he got a, a job in uh, professional baseball with, first of all, he scouted a little bit with Miami, then he became a uh, hitting coach. And then he was a big league hitting coach. But he's also coached at, uh, with the Cubs, like I said, the Royals, the Mariners, the Dodgers, the Yankees. So he's been around. He coached a lot of great players and, uh, Hall of Famers, and he helped some of those guys get to the Hall of Fame. But, uh, Pent, it's good to have you, so here we go. No, you're right. Yeah, you were one of my best friends in baseball and uh, certainly had a, a lot to do with me being a Dodger, that's for sure. I remember you got the job with Kansas City, and uh, I was there in 2002. They hired you in 2003. And when they hired you, John Bowles was the farm director, and Bowles and I were good friends, and I said, Bozzy, what the hell is this Jeff Pentland guy? I never heard him before. He says, you're going to love him. You, got, you two guys get along real good together, and uh, he's a hell of a hitting coach, and he was 100% right about that. Well, I appreciate that comment. I mean, Bozzy and I didn't get off on the right foot early, but uh, as I progressed in the organization at that time, as you know, 
college coaches were not looked at as uh, professional coaches. So, you know, we had to break that barrier. Well, I remember the first year you were there, 2003, we had Angel Bro, a young shortstop that uh, we didn't know if he's going to be a shortstop or not in the big leagues from what they told me. I didn't know too much about him before that, but uh, we kind of was, I call it team coaching. You know, he needed work hitting, he needed work with his fielding. And you said, you work on his fielding, and when we get done with that, I'll work on his hitting. But we can't both work on the same thing. They're, you know, two things together because we'll confuse him. That was a great – that would work good. I mean, that was a good, good uh, you know, good uh, strategy, so to speak. So I worked with his fielding. I mean, I remember just rolling balls to him to get him under control. He was out of control, but I got him under control, became a hell of a fielder. Then you took over and made him a hell of a hitter. He won the rookie of the year. I think he hit 287, something like that with some home runs, some RBIs as a shortstop. So it was a good job. We, we, we worked together, and uh, but you did most of it because, you know, made him a hitter, which helps you become a rookie of the year more than a fielder. But uh, that was a good success story right there. No, Angel was one of my favorite players uh, and never had an issue with him. I did some drills with him, and he absolutely hated because uh, – I made him hit off machine when it was going pretty quick. And uh, as you know, if you miss hit a baseball, it really hurts. And he went through a lot of pain, but, you know, he fought through it. And you're right. It was a team effort. Uh, the other guy he forgot to mention was Carlos Beltran, uh, who actually got me fired because uh, me and the owner didn't agree with uh, the fact that he should sign a contract. And uh, so I said some things I shouldn't have said, and that was the end of me. But uh, that was also a team effort because uh, Tony was involved in that. But Carlos was so introverted that he wouldn't come down to the cage. And I told Tony, I said, this guy might be the best athlete I've ever coached. And if we can't get him down the cage, he, he's not. he just started switch hitting left-handed. And he needed a lot of reps, and uh, you guys helped me get him down to the cage, and obviously the rest is history. Why wouldn't he come down to the cage, Jeff? He, he was so introverted and so religious that he didn't feel comfortable around other people, and Bob knows what I'm talking about. Yeah. But besides being a good hitter, he might have been the best outfielder in the American League, even though Torrey Hunter got most of the – uh, the plaudits for being the best in the game, but Carlos didn't take a back seat to him. That was for sure. But he was so introverted that he didn't want to hit third. You know, we had to talk him into a lot of things, but once he realized he was good, he took off. When you're working with a switch batter and I was a switch, switch batter as well. And, um, Swings are a little different, righty lefty. I don't know if I've ever seen seen a switch uh, switch batter whose righty swing looked almost identical to the lefty. Um, did, did talk about his his approach at all? What was a different righty lefty uh, oh, swing? Totally. How you? Uh, earlier in his career, when we had him uh, in two thousand three, he was a better right handed hitter than left handed hitter. So obviously, he was going to hit more left handed than right handed. So we had our work cut out as far as you know, shortening his swing path. And people don't realize also switch hitters have issues getting, getting away from balls that are throwing at them. They have to learn how to get hit. 
And one of the things they don't teach in the game today, and I did a lot of it, was teach a guy how to, how to get hit. Because if you turn your chest towards the pitcher, then your hands are exposed. And you break a wrist or, or a hand, you know, you, you basically lose them for the season. So switch hitters are, are usually natural right-handed hitters, and they learn how to hit left-handed. And, you know, there's a lot of thing that, that goes into it. And Carlos works so hard and so long left-handed that actually uh, his left-handed swing became better than his right-handed swing. There's no doubt he was a great athlete. I mean, he was, like you said, he was kind of a laid back. He could steal a base anytime he wanted to. He had a, a record for somebody stolen a base in a row without being caught. It was tough to, you know, take, you know, let him take off. He would like almost couldn't pull the trigger at times. But as he matured in the game, he just kept getting better and better. And, you know, we, uh, we had a chance to sign him when he wanted to sign a contract without his agent knowing about it. And, uh, you know, he had a figure out there, which at that time was good for the club. All of a sudden, uh, the club said, no, that's too much. Next thing you know, it went to his agent, and we lost him for sure. But uh, he was he was definitely one of the top athletes. I mean, he could do stuff that you couldn't believe anybody could do. I remember in, in a train room one day, he'd stand flat-footed and jump up on a table. It had to be like four and a half feet high. and just, you know, explode no, up to That the, was uh, absolutely incredible to watch. You know. But like I said, he was one of the best athletes and he one of the best center fielders. And uh, then he realized how good he was or how good he could be. And he really took off from there. No, we, we ended up trading him to Houston. And I think he had eight home runs in the playoffs. Yeah. Uh, you know, and then the Mets signed him for a hundred million dollars. So obviously there was value there. Yeah. Well, that's one thing. That later on, I had him with the Yankees my last year of coaching in 2015. Yeah. Yeah, and he was a mature, one of the top players in the game. And uh, there was one thing that happened. I always felt that Major League Baseball should change the rules. Uh, you know, when you signed a player from Japan, like Ichiro, they had to pay the Japanese team X amount of dollars. And I said, I propose that if you lose a player like Beltran, you develop him and bring him to the big leagues and has success, all of a sudden we can't afford him. Whoever signs him, we should get a percentage of what they sign him for. So in other words, they get 10%. In the meantime, Alan Barrett's the general manager. He's running all over the country looking to get the best players he can to trade for him. Went with three players, and they were good players, but they weren't great players. So we wouldn't say he signs that $100 million contract, what it was at the time. Say we got 10%, we got $10 million. You can go out and get yourself some pretty good players with a $10 million. But I don't know why they wouldn't do that. Evidently, the Player Association didn't think we'd go for it, but it never got past me and maybe a couple other guys. But to me, that's what it should have been done. I mean, share it, take care of it small market teams who develop these players but can't keep them because of salary figures. No, I think you bring up a good point. Uh, uh, these small teams like Kansas City in that day, I mean, Carl's turned out to be, you know, got a possible chance of getting in the Hall of Fame, but uh, they, they don't get much back. You never get you never get the, the player that Carlos was, even in, if you trade for three guys. You know, that was a famous statement by the Cubs GM when they traded Maddox. I'm getting three or four players for one. How do I, how can I lose? Well, Maddox turned out to be pretty good. You think? (laughs) Well, funny story about Carlos. He was from Puerto Rico 
and he told me he could not play in April. It was too cold. And we opened up, I think, the season in Chicago or early. And he told me he, he, can't, he can't hit in the cold weather. And he hit two bombs to actually win the game all by himself. So I, I told him, I said, I, I don't, you told me you can't play in cold weather. And he ended up being the player of month in April, which is ironic in a sense. Yeah. Well, he was a very insecure guy with great talent. And like I said, he didn't realize how good he was. But once he realized how good he was and he can be, he was one of the best in the game, no doubt about it. <clears throat> but one thing about Penn, uh, Dave, said, you know, he, he was a guy that would take charge. And uh, I don't think he ever had a fist fight in, in, in a cage. But, you know, he wouldn't take let anybody lay down. And he all said, like we all said, you know, you either get better or you get worse. And he pushed these guys. So much sometimes, you know, now that the agents get involved and he had a bad rap at times. That's why he's had so many different jobs. But the reason he has so many different jobs because he's really good. He was really good at what he did. Yeah, you know, he started with Barry Bonds in college, right? He coached him and then, you know, yeah, Sosa. Two years in, at ASU. Yeah, you know, then you had Sosa in Chicago and you, you had a lot of good, good players and they all respect the heck out of you. I mean, they all talk very highly of you. And uh, the time I was in Kansas City, I was interim manager and I got a call that they're going to let you go. I said, what's that all about? And they wouldn't tell me, but it was it was stupid. But anyway, uh, he ended up on his feet again, and uh, you know his career was not over. He had a few more places to go, and but he was hired by good teams. And uh, you know your your philosophy was great, and uh, you're a great teacher, and that's what it's all about. You got to be a good teacher. Well, right back at you. I thought you were a great teacher. I know guys get a lot of credit, and when you're with a small market team, sometimes you don't get that credit, but. Uh, I always thought you were a great infield coach, and certainly uh, there wasn't too many uh, better bench coaches than you were. No, I appreciate and, that. Uh, no, I enjoyed the banner between you and Larry. Oh, <laughs> you guys used to go back and forth arguing, and, you know, it would get heated at times, but Bo was a great baseball guy, of course. Hey, Tim. What's what's a when you grab a hitter? You've worked with some great ones. Uh, Bob mentioned Bonds. You had Beltran. I mean, when you were the Yankees, there was a whole lineup of if you could just close your eyes and take a pick. What what are some tenets that you subscribe to with hitting? Because we're seeing with today, we have a big big contingency of youth baseball following us here, and they're in the era of launch angle and exit velocity and all this crazy. I'm I'm, I'm reading the thing that Jeff Fry just sent me on a smart bat. Uh, Smart back coached by a dummy doesn't work very well. It's an AI coming into this stuff. But what were some tenants that you would uh, get down with with the hitters when you would start working with a guy? Well, I mean, you're, you're, you're dealing with various talent. Obviously, I had Barry, who first time I laid eyes on him, I knew that he was going to be something really special, uh, regardless of the accusations. But uh, you immediately know if a guy can hit or not. How, how was that was interesting that's bob's dance music here that was impromptu <laughs> could be barry bonds calling him but uh, I couldn't, I couldn't oh, off the time. you know barry, barry was uh was very easy you know when you get great interest like that you're not doing a whole lot with those guys uh most of the time you're just uh doing you know mental work video work i mean 
I had each row for three years. I think I said two things to him in, in uh, three years, and they were so minor. I used to tell the video guy, see if you can figure out what he's doing wrong, and the guy would spend the whole night trying to figure out what it was, and it, it might be as simple as he was landing with his stiff front leg instead of what I call take a little weight before you shift. And, you know, so you get more of a, a straight line movement. You know, people think you rotate, and, and that is so far from the truth. We're actually trying to create straight lines when we hit because the minute you rotate, you're coming off the ball. So one of my biggest things was to teach them how to uh, obviously – load or, or get back, but also learn how to shift your weight through the ball. Because we're, we're not really rotating through the ball, we're shifting through the ball. The rotation does happen. But also remember my master's degrees in biomechanics. And certainly there are biomechanical experts that are way, way better than I am. But the, the thing I had is I played, so I understood the swing better than even the, the best biomechanical man, because they talk about launch angle. There is no such thing. You know, they, they can see it, but it's a natural action. In other words, it happens automatically. And because the bat has so much weight and, and it creates a lot of torque. And when you create torque, the bat gets heavy. So you can't hold that bat head up. And Bob knows that because he played too. You know, the head is, is, is going to, you know, it, it's going to fall. And when you catch the ball, when it's coming up like a grandfather clock, then that's, that, that's the launch angle. And they try to produce it or manufacture it and you can't. And that's where the problems start. Yeah. Well, it's uh, so when you get a guy like each barrel bonds, I mean, what you're saying is you, you're trying to individualize it, but keep it simple. Um, they seem to overcomplicate it. Well, you do your job. I mean, obviously, you, you watch, you know, I used to go in around noon and, and shaped it too. And I would spend two hours, players wouldn't come in until around two. I'd spend two hours on a video. I would check my hitters every day to make sure that they were somewhat in line. Uh, obviously, you never want to complicate issues because you don't get to the big leagues because you're not a good athlete or a good hitter. Uh, they're, they're born that way. And as a coach, you just try to maintain consistency and make sure their, their mechanics are somewhat what they, what they are individually. You know, each row had his own way of doing things, and most hitters do. So, you know, you become aware of that stuff. And, you know, the videos have gotten so good. And you know, when I first started in the business, you, the videos, you couldn't see anything. Uh, it was difficult, and now you, you can see the hair on their arms, and you can slow it down. So it was very easy to take a veteran player, and then that's what I did with Ichiro. I, I would show him when he was at his best, and then I would show him, like, where he was that particular time, and then we'd roll it frame by frame, and I would show it to him, and he still didn't believe me. He had to go back and look at it again, but, you know, great hitters – uh, they don't just accept anything you say. They they gotta they have to accept it themselves. So they they know their swings. So when you tell them something, hopefully very simple, uh, they see it and they correct it right away. I think Ichiro was like one for thirty when I showed him. 
I showed him two things. One was he was showing me too much number. In other words, he was 51. And when he was good, all I saw was one from a centerfield camera. And when he was struggling, I would see 51. So that means he's turning in too much. That is so simple and so easy. He fixed it immediately and went like 11 for 14. Because he had that very unique uh, one-legged, uh, not not as much as uh, Sadahara O, but in that same mold, right? The Japanese hitters tend to subscribe to that. Yeah, he, you know, he was an amazing guy. And he, his work, he would tell me, and he would come within 30 seconds of what time he wanted to come in the cage. And I'd always give him, Seattle had two cages, so... I would give him one cage and he says, I'm coming in at 222 and he would be there at 222. His work was religious and, and it was all timed and he was always on time. Nobody worked harder than that, that kid. And if you watch him take BP, he'd hit, he'd hit 13 out of 15 in the upper deck, but in the game, he would, he would hit balls down the left field line. And that was his game. Yeah. Well, you know, we talk about that launch angle again. Um, recently, last five years or whatever, you come up with a launch angle. You get little guys swinging up. I mean, you don't you don't support that, do you? Were to swing it up and start a launch angle behind your hand, behind your back. I had will always bottom out because when you when you create all that momentum and torque, that bat turns into a 32, 31 out, turns into five or ten pound bat. So it's gonna bottom out. Especially if you approached, like, I had a big argument. They flew me to Carlsbad. They had some device they put on the end of the bat that measured all these things. And then they took me down the lab, and they uh, they actually did my swing, which at, I think I was 60-something at the time, which was ridiculous to do my swing. But they, 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 they had an angle, which they call the attack angle, which is uh, how vertical your bat is on your approach to the ball and the one who had the most vertical angle was Mike Trout. He was minus 31 and they wanted hitters to be minus three, which I don't know if you guys can understand this, but what Bob is saying is exactly right. So when you're minus three, your bat gets flatter sooner. So uh, what happens once the bat gets to the hitting area, then the bat has remember it's always going to bottom out. It's always going to fall. So the bat would be under the ball consistently. And when I was coaching in the big leagues, most swing and misses, the bat head never comes over the top of the ball. It usually goes under the ball. So they're promoting under, which didn't make sense to me. Right. That's why they high fastballs get away with those now because the guys are trying to uppercut them and they can't catch up to them. No, I I remember uh, who was the pitcher from San Francisco that uh, one Cy Young, he he was – that little skinny guy that, this, this oh, guy. yeah, and he, and he threw a bunch of, not not Madison Bumgarner. Wow, the first time I saw him was in spring training in Scottsdale, and I said nobody's going to be hitting this guy because he at that time when he was a rookie he was throwing ninety six to ninety eight miles an hour with that with that deception he had. I didn't think I think he was going to throw no hitters. But well, Lincecum, we, we, we faced him a lot because, you know, you were there. And obviously that was a great rivalry, the Giants uh, and the Dodgers. And I remember the, uh, the 
I can't think of his name. One of the pitchers that threw the no hitter was always throwing at Kemp and Ramirez. Uh, and we had, uh, who was that little left-hander we picked up from Toronto? And I think he hit Polsey twice, but it was like a fly hit him. Uh, you know, cause they only threw about 88 miles an hour. Uh, so we had some battles with him, but uh, Lincecum, you know, Mattingly was, was the other hitting coach. And all we talked about was laying, laying you know, laying off the, you know, the high fastball. Right. Well, he, had a, he had a really good split finger too. Right. Well, in these days, I mean, those days it was like, you know, staying top of the ball, so to speak, and just, you know, get back span if you can. Well, you approach, you approach from above, you know, once you, once you're above the ball, everything is natural. It just fits. So, but the, if you lay off the bat, then you create issues. That's why, uh, as a hitting coach, I didn't like guys to lay their bat flat on their shoulder because they couldn't create a, a, a short enough path to catch up to a 95, 96 mile an hour fastball. Right. So even though Goldsmith lays it on his shoulder, as he approaches the ball, he gets the head more vertical, the, the bat head. So when when the head is bat head is straight up and down, it's much shorter to the point of contact. Right. That's all about the front arm. The front arm controls how long your swing is, right? Right. I always had a drill. I had a, a front arm drill that I, that's how I got Angel going a little bit because he had a big loop in his swing, and you saw it, Bob. You were you yeah. were there. Right. And so we worked every day with just his front. I I invented this short bat. And uh, I wish I'd have made some money on it, but the, the company that made it, you know, because I designed it, specced it out in the whole nine yards, and they, that was their top moneymaker was that little short bat that I basically invented. It, you know, short bats were around, but they, they weren't very heavy. So I got this company to put plugs into the short bat, which made it up. I could get it as high as 33, 34 ounces which is unheard of for a short bat. And when you, when Angel was swinging short bat, he had, he didn't have a very strong lead arm, which I think you have to have in hitting. And we, we do one after another and his, his arm was aching and barking, but you know, he stayed with it. And that front arm is what creates contact in my opinion. I agree. I mean, that's why like I was a left-handed hitter, it's right-handed thrower. So my right arm was stronger. And I could hit a fastball. When I started breaking, you know, changing speeds, I was in trouble. But uh, I could get the bat out there because my strong arm is my front arm or my low, you know, bottom yes. hand. Yeah, it took me a long time because I was left-handed and my lead arm was right. right. I spent hour after hour trying to strengthen my lead arm, my lead forearm. And I promoted that all, all through my 17 years in the big leagues. You know, I didn't spend, spend I didn't spend every year uh, seventeen years. I got fired sometimes, but uh, that was one of my big things. And a lot of hitting coaches uh, that I had out, you know, that I kind of helped in the business, they they loved that front arm drill that we used to do. Yeah, I mean, you had that short bat with you all the time. Yes, and. Uh, uh, yeah, to me, it was a staple. It, it, it was, you know, point A to point B. That's what I would tell hitters. And if you can't keep the head above your your hand 
to, to contact, you're going to be long and under. And uh, that to me was a, a death move and hit him. Right. Well, Wade Boggs, uh, you know, he was perfect with getting that, the barrel above his hands. I mean, he, they, I think he popped up to the infield like once every two years or something. No, or something. I heard one year he didn't, didn't do it one year, the whole year. Yeah. I mean, that's amazing. Pretty phenomenal. Yeah. He was pretty good here. <laughs> yeah, I guess. <laughs> but, you know, we had Manny over in L.A., and I don't think I had a hitter that knew more about hitting than Manny Ramirez. Uh, he was special, and I think he took us to the playoffs at least two of the years he was there. Yeah, he made us a lot of money. Yeah, he changed, yeah, he changed the whole mantra of our, our, our team. And it allowed Kemp to be better, Ethier to be, you know, people don't understand when you get a, I think a, what's his name, calls them aircraft carriers. Uh, when you get a guy that good, and I think that year we got him uh, halfway through whatever it was, and he hit like 20 home runs and hit 400. That was pretty, pretty darn good. And he also did the same thing in the playoffs. So he made everyone around him better. He was very good to the young kids, too. He'd take them out, especially, the, you know, the Latin well, I kids. I think he made Ortiz. Because yeah. you remember Ortiz was at Minnesota, and they released him. Boston picked him up. So how did he get better? Yeah, right. Uh, Manny. Manny. Yeah he, was, yeah. he was a mentor, no doubt about it. But uh, so Dave, yeah. Dave works with a lot of young kids. His two sons are really good baseball players. And, and – uh, well, tell us what some of the situations you have, Dave, with teaching these kids. Is the parents get involved or what? Well, and, and uh, Jeff, you may be able to help out on this too. So we nowadays, I'm, I'm a generation younger than you guys. I'm 50 years old. So, um, you know, the, the kids, when they ask me about, well, how did you, uh, how did you get to play collegially? How did you get to play professionally? I coached for, for 20 years. Um, and I, how did you fit all that in with your hitting coaches, your pitching coaches, um, we didn't have that uh, when I was a kid, and I, I dare say you guys didn't have that either. These kids nowadays are inundated with not just people live. I mean, there's there's more hitting coaches or proclaimed hitting coaches than there are Starbucks nowadays, pitching coaches, uh, speed coaches, strength coaches. These kids are getting crushed every day. The biggest issue I have with these kids now is, and we run we run a program now, my wife and I do, where we we make the kids play multiple sports. So if they come to us just as a baseball player, uh, we get them involved with our basketball program. We have partnerships with soccer programs. So we really promote the multiple sports. Um, how, how do you see that, that track? And, and, and I, I talk to Ted Kubiak about it all the time. He disagrees with me. He thinks single sport. He thinks you play one sport, uh, get good at it. And uh, we have some great conversations about it. I, I totally agree with you that the, mo the more sports you play, you know, it's about having fun. And I think when you specialize early with, with young people, kids, then eventually they might get bored of the game. I mean, when you watch youth sport and you watch how they run their teams, baseball teams, there's a lot of standing around. You know, the, the biggest thing as a coach, and Bob was part of that, is we had, you know, we had stations, every, you know, Everybody was moving. They weren't just standing in the outfield, uh, you know, doing nothing. And I think that's one of the issues with youth baseball. Uh, I had a friend of mine that had me uh, 
when I, when I was younger in my career, he would have me coach his uh, all-star teams. And, man, I worked – we worked our butts off, you know, with uh, different stations, whether it was bunting, hitting, uh, outfield work, infield work, and uh, everybody was on the move. And, you know, because baseball can be boring, as, as we all know. Uh, but if you keep them busy and you have a lot of stations – uh, the fun factor is what's more important to me. And when these kids are overcoached and uh, by, <laughs> I used to have a kind of a saying that once you come to me, I got to completely redo you because some dad or uh, hired gun had coached them really the wrong way, which in my opinion, you want, you want the swing to be natural and easy because hitting is hard. There's nothing easy about it. Yeah, I, um, I, I use that phrase. When we get kids, we, we, we make a deal with them that I said, we're going to treat this like you would treat any type of family situation. If you have a problem with your hitting, we're going to keep it in the family. We'll, we'll work with it. Don't go outside the family to try to fix something because I'm going to have to refix what they broke. But I, they come to us and I, I, the phrase I use with them, they're overcoached and undertaught. And um, they go to Perfect. hitting coaches now and – they, they spend 99% of their time perfecting the swing. And I, I tell them, I said, there's no such thing as a perfect swing. Your swing should be natural. It should be almost an expression of yourself. If they're working on your approach, I love it. But if they keep spending all that time on your swing, you're wasting a lot of time um, because there's, there's a whole lot more to hitting than like you just said, than just that swing. There's That's 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 a part of it. But no one ever taught me how to swing. You watch guys, you, you ask questions, you, you play. Um, here's, here's the other question I have. We have a performance coach on and he's tremendous in terms of barking at, uh, at the audience about, you know, there's, there's no substitute in the weight room for getting better at sports. And I ask you this too, is, uh, you know, if I want to become a better fielder, here's the question. Is there any substitute for working on your craft, uh, for getting stronger and better at your craft? No, I, I think I, the reason I became a hitter at all is I had this little whammo toy in my backyard that would pop up a wiffle ball, and I must have hit a thousand balls a day. You know, it kind of had a suction cup, and the ball would pop straight up in the air. And I think one of the reasons why I was a good breaking ball hitter is because uh, you're hitting that ball on the way down, and that's kind of how a curveball reacts. And, and Bob knows. And Bob could really hit a, a, a fungo. And one of my drills to hitters was, was hit a fungo. So you throw the ball up and you hit it on its way down. That takes eye-hand coordination. So anytime you're hitting, whether you're using a stick, a wiffle bat, whatever, you're improving your ability to hit a ball in space, which I think you know, the two best hitters I ever had, and actually it was three, at seeing the ball in the hand the earliest was Barry Bonds, Gary Sheffield, Manny Ramirez. It was uncanny how they could pick the ball out of the hand because I threw batting practice and I would throw a ball that I thought was right down the middle and they were breaking down. In other words, they're going to take it and the ball would be one inch inside. It was incredible the ability to recognize pitches. Now that speed of recognition was to me what makes a hitter. I mean, they talk about swing, but the guys that could hit could track the ball, they could see the ball earlier, they could pick up spin, and they had exceptional 
I, I, you know, I vision or actually visual acuity, which is ball in, in motion. They say Ted Williams, when he managed Washington, he always was, you know, tremendous ice, I, you know, I, I skill. But they said that he'd take batting practice one day and put pine tart into his bat and hit a ball and just batting practice. Now he's like 50s, maybe 60 years old. And he could tell what part of the ball he hit. I hit the seam or I hit the, hit the, uh, the yeah. leather part. And you look at the ball in the outfield, and he was right. But that's exceptional. I mean, I worked for this company called AccuVision that Don Manley got me involved in. And it was something that, would, you know, lights go on, and you, you, you kind of look straight ahead, but you peripheral vision, you see the light out of the corner of your eye, you try to hit them. And it was a great vision training thing. And you can improve your visual skills if you try to train them. It, to me, it's the most important thing in baseball is hitting a baseball is, you know, visual skills. And, uh, you can improve them. There's certain tests you can do or ter- certain exercises you can do for your eyes because your eyes have muscles like your arms and your legs, but it takes a while to realize how much better you're getting. So that's why it hasn't really taken off like it should take off. But again, the guys with great visual skills, like it's about Manny. Manny would, the pitcher would throw the ball and about, you know, maybe a foot off his hand and he'd almost start the first base. He knew it was going to be a ball. And that's just a special visual skill that he had. Yeah, and, and I got on GMs all the time that we need to do more eye work, whatever whatever eye specialists can do, because depth perception to me was the number one key, and then you're talking about peripheral vision. So one of the items I always look for with a hitter is if when he set up in the box, was he getting both eyes looking at the pitcher? Because especially right-handed hitters, they would have a uh, – a real fear of sliders because a good slider is practically unhittable. And so they would start leaning or turning out over the plate to, to overcome that fear. And what happens is they start turning their shoulders in. Now their head, you only got one eye looking at the ball and without both eyes, you have no depth perception. So that was another thing that I watched, but it was a simple, simple thing. Uh, to keep them squared up to the pitcher. There there was a misnomer now when I was coming through where we had a dominant eye, but I I like what you're saying. And I agree with it that, I mean, I I always ask kids, you know, I see their heads tilting to correct it. I'll, I'll I'll ask them because they they do get into that with the launch angle. Now, when you see kids doing launch angle, you'll see their head tilt. And I ask them, I said, if I were to ask you to read that sign over there, how would you read it? And invariably they got two eyes on the sign. Their chin is square to the sign. And, uh, and I said, no, why on earth would you hit with one eye and tilting your head like that? To me, that makes it everything that you're talking about more complicated. So what, what, did you have any exercises or drills you did for the eyes other than just, other well, than you know, uh, you know, I had Beltre who was one of my favorite players of all time because nobody had more fun playing the game than, than, than he did. Uh, he was fun to coach, real fun, but. There are times I thought he had, uh, you know, some issues uh, picking up the ball. And, uh, you know, we worked tirelessly to make sure that he was squared up. And almost I would open him up a little bit in his stance so he could get both eyes on the ball. And, and you, you're absolutely right. You know, because when I would do clinics and I start talking about hitting – I would go to the simple things first, like keeping your shoulders level, keeping your hips level, keeping your knees level, make sure your head's not tilting. And the people were going, wait a minute, that has nothing to do with hitting. And I said, 
No, it has everything to do with hitting. Because if you're not squared up to the ball, then you don't know where the bat head is. And, and the number one thing a hitter has to know at all times is where the fat part of the bat is. Because uh, that's your eye-hand coordination, in my opinion. And if you're tilted at all, you're not, you're not, you're not going to know where it is. Well, hitting is nothing more than stroke and timing. Timing is more important than stroke. You can have the great best swing in the world, but if you can't time the ball, no, you see where exactly. it is, you know, see where it is, how far away from me you are, you got no chance. So that's where the eye skills, you know, come in come in handy. And uh, some people have them, but you know, like batting practice, if you just concentrate hitting the ball, and, you know, watching a bat hit the ball, that that's that's vision training right there, because you can improve your visual skills if you work on it. And there's a lot of things you can do. Uh, you know, off the field. I mean, one thing is you you put your thumb up and you know look at a telephone pole or something like that, and then you uh, then you look at the telephone pole and you look at your thumb again, and it's called refocusing. So you look distance, look close, go back and forth, and you refocus. And uh, that's like a lot to do with depth perception, but you can improve your visual skills by exercising your eyes. It's it's well, fascinating what I learned from this Acuvision company. No, I mean that. I don't think we've touched much of that and it needs to be done in my opinion, but general managers that I would talk to didn't think it was a big a deal, but uh, I mean, obviously they did eye tests before they signed guys. So vision is huge. Uh, but one thing I would do when I was a coordinator, I was a coordinator in the Meyer leagues. In fact, uh, Miami hired me when I was you know, like 68 years, I was getting a little old. But one of the things I would do with the minor leaguers is I would bring up eight pitchers that all had different deliveries. And Bumgarner was one of them. And Paxton was another one. And uh, who was uh, the little guy from Houston that had that really short arm delivery? So what you're showing them is uh, by the release of the ball, where the, where pitchers released or whether they stepped across the line and it was harder to pick up the, the release point, these guys were effective. And, you know, minor league players would go in there and work hours and hours on their swing, but didn't pay one bit attention to uh, the, the release point from the pitcher. They never studied the pitchers, and I was huge on that. Remember when Jeter would come on deck, we'd have to move him back all the time because he was almost directly behind the catcher trying to time the pitcher and they didn't have a uh, on deck circle in New York on purpose. I'm sure you remember that, Bob. Yeah, I do. I remember, you know, he'd sneak up there all the time and they push him away. And then the best one was Beltry that time when he moved yeah, when, that, he moved, uh, when he moved the circle. Yeah. And he took him out of the game. I, that was crazy. That was funny as hell. Well, that, that's our friend, Mr. West, Joe West. Yeah. Yeah. Beltry. I mean, he just dragged that, that, you know, what is that kind of rubber circle over there? So right. He was behind home plate, and he said, oh, no, you can't do that. But, he, you know, that was Beltry. I mean, he was he had fun playing. That was pretty good, oh, I thought. I would tell him to do it. You yeah. Know? I mean, <laughs> you know, that, the, the thing you're talking about, the swing, I, I would tell hitters all the time, I mean, yeah, I can make your swing almost perfect, but it has nothing to do with hitting. Right. And they look like you were, you were crazy because they thought the swing was a thing. Yeah. In reality well, – all you really have to do is get the head to the ball, the bat head, square up the ball. And I don't care if you're standing on your head. If you can do that, you can hit. 
but you got to know where the ball is. That's where you, that's where your yeah. timing comes in. Yeah, like timing I said, they, is everything. And some hitters, you know, uh, uh, who was our first baseman back there with the Dodgers? Loney. Yeah. Loney says, I'm not going to start my movement until I see the pitch. I said, Loney, you have to start your rhythm before he releases the ball. That's how fast that ball gets on top of you. Right. He, he wouldn't change, and, and it ended up costing him a job, and he was a great athlete, I thought. Good lefty stroke. I, um, yeah. I have a question for you. So my, my, my boys are with me all the time, and they uh, we were talking to a guy who's in scouting right now, and he again, old-fashioned, shake hands, look in the eye, say hello. And when they got done shaking his hand, he looked and he said, uh, I could tell you got a couple of ball players here. And I said, tell them what you mean by that. And what he was talking about was their, their hand strength, their, their wrist and their forearm strength. And they shook hands. How important is that to hitting the fingers, the hands, the wrist from that elbow? Well, up? for me, the most important part is your, your lead arm forearm. Uh, there's a muscle on top of that. It's called a brachialis muscle. And, the guys that can really hit, if you look at Jim Rice, or if you look at Steve Garvey, you look at some of these guys, their forearms were just huge. And I played golf with Willie Mays when I was 21 years old. It was the greatest thrill of my life. And in those days, we weren't allowed to lift weights. So there was usually an imbalance of one side of the body to the other back in those days. So Willie Mays' lead front arm look like one of those crabs, you know, that has a huge crab leg and then the other one's all shriveled up. Well, his, his uh, back arm was, was normal, but his lead forearm was absolutely, I couldn't take my eyes off. It was so big. So yeah, to me, strength comes from your forearms, you know, cause it's, you got to remember in baseball, you're not playing once a week, you're playing every day, especially in the big league level. So that's 162 games. Plus, you got 30 games in spring training. You're talking close to 200 games. So if you don't have forearm strength, I remember Sheffield would go in after the games and he would put like four of those huge 45 pound plates on and had a hand squeezer, and he would he would do it every night after after the games. And Gary Sheffield was not a big human being, but incredibly strong and well, great bat speed. And, and, and the bat speed, see, where bat speed comes, if your, your hands and forearms aren't strong enough and you got to use the strength to hold the bat up, then you can't create whip. Because, you know, that's why I won't work with young players because they don't have the strength to keep the bat up. So the bat kind of swings them. So you got to be strong enough to be able to hold the bats fairly loose and yet have total control of the head. That's so, one of my favorite phrases I, with the kids when they, the young ones come in. I say, who's swinging who up there? Exactly. <laughs> so I say, you know, if if the kid, you know, I, I won't – usually it's 14 is the minimum age I work with, and I'm still working. I don't know why, but uh, I'm leaving uh, to go to, to work with a kid that just got released in, uh, in Whitefish, Montana, and I'm not looking forward to the weather, but uh, – you know, he had a problem, got hit in the face with a 98-mile-an-hour fastball, and he's never hit the same. So that had a big effect on him. Oh, I'm sure. Well, you know, you look at a slow-motion swing, 
And you see when a guy makes contact, how the bat actually bounces off the ball a little bit. I mean, you get a ball thrown 95 miles an hour, that's a big force. So you have to have that strength, like you said, your forearm strength to overcome that, that yeah, force. Core, obviously, your core comes into play, but most of the time these guys are taking care of that. Right. But, but the you know, we used to roll the to do is chest. Because, uh, you know, I had the, when I had Sammy, he would build himself up so much that his pecs, you know, uh, his chest was so big, his arms couldn't clear. So I had to move his arms, his hand. He's, you notice he would hold his hands way away from his body. Well, I had to do that so his arms could clear so he could get the head to the ball because he'd build his chest up too much. Yeah. Well, we used to roll weights. That was a big thing. Roll the weights and squeeze it. Those uh, squeeze things, you know. And that well, was. We agreed completely about weight training. I think they overdo it nowadays. And I think you agree with that. Oh, yeah. Because they're, they're, they're doing, they're, all you need is strong forearms and, and a core, you know, your stomach, your thighs, your butt. Th- those are, those are physical muscles and they create power. Because if you notice power hitters, they don't, they don't have small glutes. They're, they're built down there. Yeah. Bob, we're closing in on an hour here with Jeff. We could probably keep him on for another two and talk hitting. What, uh, what, what, to be respectful to him, we got actually Jim Cott coming up on the back end of this doubleheader. Oh, he what, he what's had my, a little better career than me. Oh, I'll tell you what. The I think what this these shows do is, you know, we have a, a humility, Bob, would you say, about the game. And we're, we're trying to get the voices like yourself, Jeff, and, and Jim Cott, um, all with great information so that we can help build the next generation of baseball because there's some rough things going on out there. So, don't don't discount your value to not just these shows, but to baseball and jump boy. You talk you, uh, about simple. Jim Cod have maybe had the simplest wind up in the game. Yeah, and he pitched forever. Yep. So yeah. my respect for him is off the charts. Yeah, he's, he's good. Bob, what, what final questions would you have for Jeff? Anything you want to bring well, up? One thing I like to say, you know, you said it before in different terms, but to be a better pitcher, a better thrower, you got to throw. To be a better hitter, you got to swing the bat. Like I tell these kids, come down here, like grandkids. And they get a pretty good swing. It's like you go home, you swing the bat 100 times every day. You know, simulate outside pitch, inside pitch, down pitch. You know, all four quadrants, basically, the hitting zone, or five, or six, whatever it is. But it's just swing right, the bat. Right on, by the way. <clears throat> yeah, I mean, you can lift all the weights. There's no swing in a weight room. But you got to swing the bat so you know where the head of the bat is, like you said. Then get a tee and put a ball on a tee and hit off the tee. To me, the tee is, is awesome. Just shows you where you got to make contact and so forth. But, uh, you know, swing a bat, throw a ball. And again, when you throw, you know, get your arm loose, condition your arm, and then you can strengthen it by throwing a long toss. I mean, that's what the game is all about. And we talked many times, Dave, about playing pepper. Yeah, love it. Yeah, Penn, you played pepper all the time, I'm sure. But that was oh, that's that's one a, of my that's one of my biggest drills, and they, and they basically outlawed it. I know nobody does it anymore. It's just a simulated game. It's and the other thing that they've done, and <laughs> which kind of you know upsets me, is they're worried about wearing these guys down. And, you know, if you do a little bit of work afterwards, you know, maybe hand grip or, you know, what Chef did, I mean, you can you can take a lot of swings and you're not going to get tired. Uh, but, you know, this, it all goes back to the pitch count. Maybe the worst thing ever invented was that thing the pitching coach has that clicks every pitch. Right. You know, I mean, 
I don't know how you determine when an arm is going to, you know, have a problem. I, I, I think it's an individual thing. And if your mechanics are good, but, you know, when they're snapping off these breaking balls at maximum effort, you know, they're, they're asking for trouble. Because the biggest thing I used to tell hitters, we don't really hit the ball. We catch the ball. We use his velocity plus our shift of our weight to create power. That's what I did with DeShera when I was over with Yankees. Yankees told me you're, you're going to have an issue with him. But every time he took BP, he's trying to hit at 450 feet. And I, and I asked him, who are your idols, mentors growing up? And he said, um, one of them was Mattingly, and the other one was the, the Cleveland Murray. And I said, do you ever watch those guys take BP? All they hit is skimmers. You know, in other words, like you throw a rock across a lake. They're just skimming the ball through the infield. So they're getting their feel for their contact point and make sure they're coming from above. But they're just squaring up balls. They're not. When you hit every ball into the stands, and I used to get on Adam Jones all the time, I said, you know, all you're doing is making your swing bigger and longer. You're not really working on anything. And if you're going to take BP, take it right. And Teixeira did it. And he ended up having a tremendous year at 38 years old. Yeah. Um, yeah. Again, that's, you know, you have a good swing. You, you know, you learn what you want to learn or, you know, teach yourself how to learn. And that's what it's all about. And, you know, like you say, always got to be your own coach to a certain extent. A coach can tune you up maybe, but your swing is your swing. Your strength you can prove, but you can prove in the right way. It's baseball strength, not just brute strength. I well, love that. The biggest things that death moves in hitting, I used to tell him, was, uh, you know, doubt and tension. If you go up there, that's why I used to laugh at hitters because you get them in on second and third. And I told Sammy, the reason you're not getting uh, the players liking you as much as you want is because – your, your stats are against, you know, when we're 10 runs up or 10 runs down, you're going to have to learn to hit with men on base. So uh, we, we had a big argument about that, but he became very good at it later on. I'm positive. Well, that's uh, tons of great nuggets today, Jeff. We appreciate you coming on the show and giving us almost an hour of your time. We, we've got to have you back if you don't mind. That's well, a- I got a little too fired up, didn't I? No, we love it. Gosh, I think uh, I think you're just getting warmed up. If, if, uh, well, if you don't have passion for what you do, it's a shame. Yeah, yeah. and I'd love to have a whole show, Bob, on on approach and batting practice with Jeff, and and how to talk to kids about that the next time we have him on. Because I, I agree, I see the same things, and um, we don't have enough time to get to it today. But certainly, open invitation to come back, Jeff. I think your your uh, your knowledge is always welcome here, and. Love the guests that Bob's starting to bring on here. It was just me and Bob for a while. And um, he said, let's start bringing on some guests. His guests are golden. You mentioned Larry Bow was on with us. So we had Jeff Fry on last week. Um, but some, some really great guests to come on the show. So we'll definitely have you back. And, Bob, thanks so much for a great show today. All right, that was good. Thanks so much, Shake, you were, you were a hell of a lot of fun. <laughs> we had a lot of fun. But, you know, yeah. we, we had fun, we but fun together. We had fun together, and when we have fun together, the players like that too. And they, when they see no, the coach they again, knew that. they knew that we were pretty good buddies. Yeah, and that's what it's all about. So, well, thanks again for you coming on and your time, and uh, thank Liz for hooking us up. <laughs>
Yeah, it yeah. wasn't for her, this wouldn't have happened. You know, <laughs> we're gonna do a show on the wives. They're all the MVPs. So today, yeah. everybody hooked up here. Um, yeah, so we want to thank our audience, two sixty thousand. You guys know what to do. We're we're battling the podcast world analytics, just like you're doing baseball. Give Bob five stars. Write some great comments, some questions. That'll keep us moving up the charts. Thanks to Ted Kubiak uh, for for supporting every show. He gives me feedback on every show, Bob. Just like he's still my coach, and he uh, get his book for Christmas. Anybody out there is a baseball fan, old school, and then how to field a ground ball. Two great uh, books for your Christmas lovers. It's a blackout coffee. Use Bob's code B O B S all caps with the number twenty after it. Uh, you will get twenty percent off your coffee purchase. Doesn't matter how much it is. Use that code. That helps support Bob and the podcast here. And uh, we appreciate what you do, Bob. And and thanks so much for a great show today. Episode three seventy three in the books. Hang on with us, guys. Here for a second. All right. <clears throat> Cause I'm a